0: Go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis 4. We're looking at Genesis 4 and 5 this morning. I told you we're going to kind of ramp up our going through the the Pentateuch, through the first five books of the Bible. We're in Genesis right now. We've been going through a little bit slowly. We're going to kind of ramp that up this morning. We're not going to get to every part of this passage. We're going to kind of cover some big themes that exist in these two chapters, and then uh, next week we'll be in Genesis 6. and encourage you to, to read ahead in that as well. So if you're able to this morning, if you would stand with me as I read God's Word, I'm going to read parts of Genesis chapter 4, and I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Remember, Adam and Eve have just left the garden, they've been expelled from the garden, they've sinned against God, and we come to verse 1 of Genesis 4. And his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujahel, and Mahujahel fathered Methusahel, and Bethushahel father Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who pra- played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane, He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron and the sister of Tubalcane was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and look at the very end of chapter 5, verse 28, when Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. And from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah for, for, for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. This, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we recognize this morning our, our tendency to not worship you rightly, uh, to practice idolatry. We repent of that. We ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your your help in helping us understand rightly who you are and worshiping you rightly this morning. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus, amen. When I was in seminary, I I took a class on ministry and leadership and the professor who was teaching it was a very gracious man. And he was talking to us one session about our need to take care of ourselves. And he was saying some good things. He said, you know, you need to, to take care of yourself mentally and, and spiritually, emotionally, and, and physically. You need to do a good job taking care of yourselves. And all that's very true. I, I agreed with that. And I think it's a good word not just for leaders but for all believers to, to take care of themselves. But then he said this. He said, after all... God has commanded us to love ourselves. God has commanded us to love ourselves. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression, that God wants us to love ourselves, that we need to love ourselves. And, but it's, it's an expression that I'd heard before, but as he said it, it, it struck me as odd. And so I, I asked him, He he's a very gracious guy, a loud dialogue, and I said, so uh, help, help me understand, whenever you say that we need to love ourselves, what do you mean? What, what does that mean to you? He says, well, for example, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking about the commandments of God, the two greatest commandments. And he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And he says the second command is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the professor said, so because we've been commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, there's an implicit command to love ourselves. He said, I, I not don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I said, first of all, I don't think Jesus is saying here are three commands. Command number one, love God. Command number two, love your neighbor. Command number three, love yourself. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is love God and love your neighbor. And the assumption is that you're going to to naturally have a desire to to love yourselves. In other words, it's not an implicit command. It's, It's an assumption that that's something you're going to struggle with, loving yourself. I said, and kind of along with those lines, it seems to me that in Scripture, God is much more concerned with our tendency to love ourselves too much. In other words, you never see uh, someone really struggling with the sin problem of of caring about themselves too little. You you don't encounter that, I don't think, in, in Scripture. Jesus doesn't come alongside someone and say, you know what, I'm just not seeing you love yourself the way you really need to. In fact... We had a great dialogue as, as we kind of continued the class. But as I thought about that since then, and, and maybe again, you've encountered that in the evangelical world, this this injunction to, to love yourself, to care for yourself. Here's what, I've, here's what I've found. If a person means by loving yourself, maybe they use that phrase not very precisely, but they just mean you need to take care of yourself, then, then sure, yeah, we, we need to, to take care of ourselves, and be healthy, right? But if you think about... Technically, the biblical definition of love, what does God define love as? Love is giving of ourselves, right? Love is giving of ourselves, sacrificing of ourselves for the eternal benefit of another person. So it doesn't make sense for me to love myself because I I sacrifice for myself, for myself, it doesn't make any sense. Love is external. And far more often what we see in Scripture is that self-love very quickly devolves into self-worship into worship of self, where I'm concerned about the entire universe and and all that I know and all that I am and all my goals revolving around myself. Self-love devolves into self-worship, exalting myself, exalting my preferences, exalting my opinions, exalting uh, all the things that I love. And and even whenever I sometimes sink into depression or discouragement, that's not a, a hatred of self, that's a love of self. I love myself so much I want myself to be better. I'm upset that I'm not as attractive as I'd like to be. It's not self-loathing, it's it's self-loving. And what we see in Scripture is that self-worship leads to destruction. Self-worship, worship worship of self, leads to our destruction, to our demise. I was reading an article this this last week about a, a man who had uh, considered himself transgender, and that's something very big in our, our culture right now. He said that as he expressed his desires to transfer genders to, to people, uh, he was received a lot of support from from doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, who said, yeah, you need to do what's, what's best for yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to care for yourself. And he, he said the problem, and he, he went through very elaborate means to, to go through this process of, of thinking he was changing genders, he says the problem was, I was so self-centered. And only later did he realize that there were some deep underlying issues that he had just refused to address as he focused on, his, on, on himself. He said, he even read some, some articles uh, later, more recently, Uh, For example, a a study from the British National Institute of Health that found that people who pursue this lifestyle are in great danger of of suicide and and harming themselves and and just just terrible depression and discouragement. He quoted in this article, he quoted from a a person who had led the John Hopkins Hospitality Psychiatry Unit, and this is how this person put it this way as he was talking about there, there being no evidence that changing genders improved the quality of life for, for transgenders, this former director said this, changing genders, changing genders is collaborating with the madness of mental disorders. And here's what I would suggest to you this morning. You and I live in a world gone mad. You and I live in a world gone mad with self-worship. We live in a world of unrestrained commitment to worship of self. My highest good in life, we believe, is is to make myself happy. And we define morality, we define our relationships, we define the activities we engage in, in terms of what is going to bring me happiness and glory. Our preferences become king, our appetites become insatiable, and it leads to our destruction. And here in Genesis 4 and in in Genesis 5, we see this played out at the very beginning of of human history. In Genesis 3, we had an out, right? In Genesis 3, there was this external being, there was this serpent who was... This agent of temptation. Now as you come into Genesis 4 and in Genesis 5 you see the effects of the curse laid out. And there's no longer anyone external to blame. Now the sin resides within ourselves. And we see in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 the beginning of this, these, these ravages of self-worship. The destruction that self-worship wreaks. We see a, dest- a world destroyed by worship. Not worship of God but worship of self. As a brother in Christ who struggles with self-worship, let me just encourage you, my brothers and sisters, with this. Your problem in life is not that you don't love yourself enough. Your problems most likely are much more related to the fact that you love yourself too much rather than too little. And your love of self, your love of self and worship of self causes you to do the very things that lead to further unhappiness instead of the joy that God offers. This text tells us about the self-destructive nature of, of self-worship. We, we see it here in these, these first passages following the fall. And, and what we're going to see here in Genesis 4 and 5, we see two genealogies. One, in chapter 4, you see Cain's genealogy. Uh, this, this uh, Then a more extensive one in chapter 5, you see Abel's. And, and both of these help us think through two questions. One, what does self-worship produce? And then two, we're going to see what does true worship produce. So what does self-worship produce? And then what does true worship produce? And here's kind of the the main idea that I want you to grasp. As we live in the midst of a world ravaged by self-worship, we find hope and joy only when we choose to worship God. As you and I live in the midst of a culture that that encourages encourages us to worship self, we're not going to find hope by pursuing that path. We find hope and we find joy only when we pursue true worship of God. So let's, let's look at the text here, and we're not going to look at every verse in these two chapters, but kind to try to look at some some big things and hopefully you're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel and kind of some stories that follow but let's let's kind of dive into this the first question that I want us to consider is what does self-worship produce what does self-worship produce and we're going to see several things that self-worship produces the first thing that we're going to see that self-worship produces is conflict it produces conflict look at what the text says It says Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And I think that her response here is a response of faith. She said, well, I've I've produced a man. This is what God said would happen. What he said would happen has happened. It's been with the help of the Lord, and she has another son, Abel. And you know the story, I I hope, of Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain and Abel both bring these offerings to the Lord. Abel is a a sheep herder. He's a person who works with flocks. And Cain is one who grows Uh, fruit and vegetables here, and Abel, it says, brings the firstborn of his flock, and Cain brings his offering, and the Lord responds differently to their offerings, doesn't he? It says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, and so the question is why, right? Well, I don't think the text is is very clear necessarily on, on what exactly it is about Cain's offering that isn't acceptable before God. Some people have suggested, well, perhaps it needed to be a, a blood sacrifice, and, and perhaps that's true. Some, if you look carefully at the text, you see that it says uh, Cain brought an offering. It doesn't say anything about the offering. It's, it's how good it is, or uh, if it's the first fruits or not. But then it says Abel, in verse 4, brought of the firstborn. And so some have said, well, Abel's offering was of a better quality than than Cain's, and, and perhaps that's true as well. But what we do know for sure is that God is able to look at Abel and Cain's hearts. And he recognizes in Abel an offering that comes from a heart of faith, and he recognizes in Cain an offering that doesn't come from faith. The writer of Hebrews would put it this way, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And so God looks at Abel and he sees that Abel believes in him, he's, he's trusting in him. That faith that Abel has in God is, is manifested in the offering that he gives and God accepts it and Cain he doesn't. We also can see in the text that that Cain knows what's wrong, right? Cain recognizes that something is wrong, and God corrects him. And Cain, instead of responding with repentance, responds with further anger. Cain is a self-worshipper. And perhaps the the ironic thing here is, is he doesn't even fully realize it. And and the same may be true for you and me. I mean, what Cain probably thinks is, okay, God has has said, I I need to do X. And so I've I've done X, and so I've I've worshipped God. I've I've done what I'm I'm supposed to do. I've I've given him my offering, and so God and I should be okay. But God looks at Cain's heart, and he recognizes that Cain is an idolater, that Cain is a self-worshipper. And the, the very frustrating thing for us as well is that many of us are idolaters, self-worshippers, and we are self-worshippers even when we go through the motions of worshiping God. We read our Bibles, we come into to church and we sit down and then we stand up at the right times and we sing the songs and, and it would seem to us, so I, I guess I'm a worshiper of God because I'm doing all the, the things that God tells me I have to do to be a worshiper and yet we recognize that, that perhaps we're not in the relationship with God that we need to be how is that possible because our hearts are not right before God we've constructed for ourselves an idolatrous notion of God we've we've made it an idol and called it God we've said the God that I'm going to worship is okay with these things and we do these things and we're surprised that he doesn't find favor with us James describes this right in James chapter four, he's talking about quarrels and what causes fights. He says, "Is it not this that your, your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, and so you murder, you covenant, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have, because you do not ask. The heart of idolatry is, is a heart that is constructed, a notion of God that's not in, not in conformity with who God says He is? The heart of an idolater the heart of a self-worshipper, is going to be a heart that produces conflict. And not just conflict with, with other people, although that's part of it, right, in James 4, but also a heart that is in conflict with, with God himself. This, this past summer, I taught a, a teaching class, and some, some of us got together and we were, were talking about how to, how to teach and so we thought through the, the task of a teacher. We, we talked about how the, the task of a teacher is not simply to, to find out, the task of a biblical teacher, is not simply to find out, okay, what are, the, what are the things that people that I'm going to, to be teaching want to hear about, and then find some Bible verses that support those things. We said the task of a person who's teaching God's word is to come to God's word first. And say, so, okay, what is it that God's word says? And, and then once I find out what God's word says, then I'm going to teach it to people, and then I'm going to figure out how to help them apply it. But I don't begin with myself or the people that I'm teaching. In other words, God determines not just the answers to my questions, God determines the questions themselves. And I would would very lovingly say this, hopefully with humility, but I think that the evangelical church in North America is awash with idolatry, with self-worship, with wrong conceptions about who God is. We've said, okay, what are the things that I'm concerned about in life, and now I'm going to kind of fashion this God that will talk about these things without requiring me to humble my heart and say, God, who are you and how do you desire me to come before you? Instead, we fashion this God that's okay if we we come in at the right time on a Sunday morning, we kind of give God the things that the letter of the law says we have to give. We say, God, why don't you find me acceptable? Here's the point. The self-worshipper produces conflict. And here's what's going to happen in your life if you are a self-worshipper. There are going to be moments in your life where where here's what you want and here's what you believe God should do or what you believe God should, should have happen in your life. And then there's going to be God's plan. And those two things, this is inevitable if we're self-worshippers, those two things are going to come into conflict. You're not, going to be have, you're not going to be able to have what you think life should look like and what God thinks it should look like. Those things are going to come into conflict. And the heart of a self-worshipper is going to respond with, with anger, being upset at God. God, why haven't you done X? Why, don't, why aren't you happy with me when I do Y? The heart of a self-worshipper always leads to conflict. Here's the, the second thing we see that self-worship produces. Similar, it produces murder, right? What does Cain do in response to what Abel has done? He, he doesn't respond with repentance. He responds with this, this, this outplay of his anger with murder, takes quickly in the story it says that he they're in the field and Cain rose up against his brother and killed him and then as God tells Cain what he knows that he has done Cain again does not respond with a heart of repentance. He says, this punishment is greater than I can bear. You've driven me today. There's a lot of irony in what he says, right? He says, you've driven me away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. And then then get this. I'm going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Anyone who finds me will kill me. Now, who are the people that are around him? Well, they're his family. What is he saying? God, you can't do this. One of my family members will kill me. Which is exactly what Cain has just done. The heart of a self-worshipper, orients his or her entire life around themselves and views everything through through lens of how is this going to affect me. And the heart of a self-worshipper is a heart that loves itself, which leads it to hate others, which we see in Scripture as murder. Here's what John says in First John chapter 3, He says this in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Remember when we went through first John, you see the you see the logical progression in his thought there? What is love? Love is outward focused. Love is when I lay down my life for the eternal benefit of you. Now, what's murder? Murder is the exact opposite. The person who loves, as others focus and said, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice even my own life for your benefit. The murderer says, I love my life so much that I'm going to take your life because it benefits me. I'm going to take your life, lay down your life for me. The person who loves says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Now, what does this mean? The person who's one who hates his brother is a person who's refused to lay down his life sacrificially for your another's benefit, and has begun the pathway toward murder. That's the ultimate expression of of hatred. God calls us to lay down our lives, to care for others, even those who've wronged us, right? Uh, This last week, we were watching a a movie. We we ran into the new Cinderella movie, uh, which uh, surprisingly, the boys were not that excited about. And <clears throat> the boys kept on uh, shouting alternative plot lines to the television, and they had su- some suggestions for things Cinderella could do instead of go to the ball, things like that, and they entered, you know, some, some, great, um, some great extra dialogue. But I think, deep down, they liked it. I don't know that for sure. I liked it. And, it, you, know, it's kind of, you know, you know the story, you know the story of Cinderella, but there was, there was a phrase that was in the movie that, that I think is very good. Cinderella's mother told her, spoiler alert, before she died, uh, she, she told Cinderella, she said, uh, have courage and be kind, have courage and, and be kind. And then throughout the movie, that's, that's played out in some neat ways. You see, of course, you know the story of Cinderella. She's treated very poorly by her, her wicked stepmother and stepsisters. And you kind of feel yourself having this righteous indignation at these people. I think it's right to feel righteously indignant at, at sin. But, but how does Cinderella respond? Kindness. Kindness. The heart of a self-worshipper says, I'm the center of the universe, and, and how dare someone treat me in a way that I don't deserve to be treated? Uh, how dare my coworker treat me that way? And how dare my family treat me that way? And how dare that person from 20 years ago treat me that way? There's this, this heart of anger that leads to hatred that leads to, ultimately, it's the expression of murder. That's a self What does the true worshiper do? We're going to talk about the true worshiper is is outward focused, looking up to God, Say, I'm going to worship God, and what people do to me doesn't matter. I'm going to love them and have a desire for them to become worshipers of God as well. The self-worshiper hates and in their heart murders. Third thing that self-worship produces is disobedience. Disobedience. It's inevitable that self-worship leads to disobedience inevitable. As we go through chapter 4, it goes through the line of Cain, Cain's descendants, and you can get the idea, of course, that Cain's descendants are not going to be great people with a a forefather like this. It kind of goes through Cain's descendants, and then you come to one of his great-grandsons, Lamech. Something very interesting in verse 19. Look at verse 19 in your text, if you will. The writer points out this deterioration in the family. It says that he, he took two wives, and you have here the, the first instance of polygamy. As you go through the book of Genesis, you see that nothing ever good happens from these polygamous relationships. Here God has laid out, you know, a husband and wife shall leave his husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife to, to cleave to her and here, we see this, this disobedience, this distortion of what God has designed the family to be. We see this, the first kind of hints here of, of, of immorality, specifically of sexual immorality. We're going to see it further developed in Genesis chapter 6, as there seems to be this demonic involvement in sexual immorality. Jude chapter 6 talks about these angelic beings in Genesis 6, and these demons who participated in, in human or encouraged these the sexual morality and these indulgences and how these angels are now in chains until final judgment. There's there's this great example of the end of self worship. The person who worships self through disobedience to God in the area of sexual morality leads to destruction, right? But the self worshiper doesn't care. The self worshipper doesn't care. Self-worship means I, I desire that I'm going to decide what obedience looks like. It's not the path to happiness. Obedience is, is counter-cultural, but the self-worshipper goes along with culture and is okay with not doing what God has called him to do. Here's the fourth thing, the fourth thing that self-worship produces. produces arrogance. It produces arrogance. Look at verse 23. You have this guy Lamech, this descendant of Cain, who's taken these two wives and engaged in what we believe is a first polygamous relationship, and, and, and listen to what he says, and as, as he speaks there's kind of this, this parallelism, the first line will parallel with the next line, and, and listen to how arrogant he is as he talks about what he's done. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say, so wives listen, wives, listen. And then he says this, I've, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And we're not exactly sure what's happened here, but it looks like he's talking about an event that's happened and someone has, has offended him or, or struck him in some way. And, and Lamech has taken a, a completely disproportionate response. He's, he's responded by, by killing them. And then he says this, he says, and if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, if God is going to defend Cain, our forefather, and and provide safety for him. If anyone dares take me on, this is arrogant boast. If anyone dares take me on, I'm gonna I'm gonna do seventy seven fold or seven seventy fold. There is, as Lamech speaks, this arrogance. It's almost like he's this this tough guy looking for a fight. Someone messed with me, I killed him. Anybody tries to mess with me, vengeance will be 70 times 7. Lamech, Lamech here is, instead of, even as Cain responded with an awareness of, of the gravity of what he had done, at least even if it wasn't repentance, there's at least some sort of acknowledgement. But this person, this Lamech, this tough guy persona, has no remorse. He's worse than his forefather, this, this self-worship has has spiraled out of control. It began with Cain as he decided how he would approach God and worship him. Instead, he's worshiping himself, and it continues through his line. There's conflict, there's murder, there's disobedience, there's arrogance. There's a novel by Charles Dickens called David Copperfield, and there's this character in David Copperfield named Mr. Wickfield. Mr. Wickfield is a lawyer, and, and he always, as he goes about his lawyerly duties, is always asking people what their motives are. What's your motive in this? He asks one of the characters, who asks him to, to take in their nephew, he says, what's your, what's your motive? What are, you, what are you getting at? What do you want? And he believes that if he can find out what people's motives are, he can find out what it is that they value. What's your value is is really what he's asking. As you go about life and you do things, I can find out why you're doing what you're doing. And once I find out why you're doing what you're doing, I can find out what you're placing the ultimate value on. And the same is true for you and me. What we value affects what we do. What we do has certain fruits that it produces. And whenever a person says, "I'm, I'm the king of my own universe, I'm going to decide who God is. I'm going to decide what aspects of God I respond to or don't respond to. I'm going to make my, myself, and maybe we wouldn't say this explicitly, but I'm going to make myself the, the center of my universe, and my preferences, my opinions, my goals are all going to be shaped by what's, what's best for me. And that that motive, that value of self is going to produce certain things. It's going to produce conflict in your life. It's going to produce hatred of other people who get in the way of your worship of self. It's going to produce disobedience to God and it's going to promote a very arrogant lifestyle. The person who is a self-worshipper is a person who is very, very confident in themselves but for all the wrong reasons. A person who is a self-worshipper Is presumptuous, they're self-willed, they're headed toward disaster, but headed towards disaster with great confidence. God protect me, right? God protect me. The presence of arrogance in my life is a sure indicator I'm not worshiping God. What does true worship produce? Let's look at something positive here. Let's come to the end of, of chapter four and look at that. If, if you're able to, you come to the end of, of chapter four and you see this this true worship. There's a, the line of of Cain, and, and let me just kind of read a little bit of of Genesis four and, and go into to a little bit of Genesis five as well. It says Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. She called his name Seth, and she said, God's appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And it says, to Seth also, "A son was born, he, he called his name Enosh. And so there's this, this godly line being produced. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you come to the, the beginning of chapter 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And I talked about that word generations before. This is kind of a, a marker of, of the different sections of the book of Genesis it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of of God. And male and female, he created them. And then there's this this pattern that begins in verse 3. And it's going to continue throughout Genesis chapter 5. It's going to give us the name of someone. It's going to tell us how long they lived. Then it's going to tell us when they had a, a son. They're going to tell the name of that son. Then it's going to talk about other children they had. And then it's going to talk about how long they lived after that and then their, their total life, right? That's kind of the, the basic structure. And you see that repeated over and over again as you go through Genesis 5, and, and how does each section end? It says, for example, verse 5, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Then it talks about Seth. All the days of Seth, verse 8, were 912 years, and he died. Enosh. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. It's very interesting to, uh, to, to listen to this. I listened to this uh, yesterday as I was running. And just that, and he died, and he died, and he, and he died, and he died. There's this effect of living in a fallen world. And I know this morning that some of you are feeling the, the pain of living in a fallen world. You're feeling the effects of living in a fallen world maybe in your health, in, in relationships. You're feeling the effects of, of living in a fallen world just as, just as you struggle with your own heart this morning. Maybe this morning you're looking at these, these things that, that I described in terms of self-worship. And if you're like, I was this past week, you, and even this morning, you're feeling convicted. Boy, there, there is in my heart this tendency towards self-worship how do we respond? We'll respond with repentance and turning to true worship. And what does true worship produce? Here's the first thing. True worship produces hope. True worship produces hope. Eve is a person of hope, right? Right? You come to the end of of chapter 4, and you know that she has seen death. She has seen death close up. She's going to see the the death that Genesis 5 describes. And as we begin this new line, this line with with Seth, she responds this way. She says, God has appointed for me. And then she uses this word. Notice this word in verse 25. It's the word offspring. Have you seen the word offspring before? Well, you saw it earlier in chapter 4. I'm sorry, you saw it, especially in, I'm thinking of in Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about the, the offspring of the woman in verse 15. As, he's, as the Lord is talking to the serpent, he gives us this gospel hope, I believe. Of this, there's going to be this future offspring that's going to, to crush the serpent's heel. And Eve is a person of hope. Even in the midst of this, she has this, this hope that God is going to fulfill his promise, what he said he's going to do. Paul in the New Testament would pray that we have this hope. He says, he prays that our hearts would be enlightened so we can know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. If you're going to worship God, you're going to be a person who has hope. I was talking to a friend this past week. He's in pastoral ministry and we're talking about uh, some of the difficulties of pastoral ministry, and some of the, some of the, sometimes, uh, again, spoiler alert, uh, sometimes discouraging things happen in ministry. You know? Not mine, my friends, right? Um, and, and there's something very profound that, that we kind of we touched on in our conversation. What does it mean when I feel despair? What does it mean when I feel despair? Well, it reveals to me that my hope hasn't been in God. How does it do that? Because if I have hope, and then all of a sudden I have despair, what it means is that my hope wasn't based upon the character of God. How do I know that? Because God hasn't changed. My circumstances have changed, but God hasn't, right? As I go through a time where where I'm feeling despair, I think I need to say, "Okay, God, even in the midst of despair and discouragement, there's this tough circumstance in church, or this this tough circumstance in my job, there's this tough circumstance in my relationship. If I'm if I'm worshiping myself, I'm going to feel despair because this isn't how me, little God Daniel, wanted things to have happen. And so I'm very angry. I'm discouraged. I'm despair. If I have right worship, true worship, I say, okay, God, this is, this is your plan for my life at this time, and I hoped in you last week when things were good, your character hasn't changed one bit from last week to this week, I'm going to choose to have hope. As we think about, I was talking with another friend about eschatology, about the study of end times, and this friend and I have different understandings of eschatology, of what we believe the end times are going to look like, and, and, and we just kind of came to this conclusion, one of the the essential things that unites us is this idea of hope. We don't know the exact timetable. We don't know exactly what's going to happen when, but we do know, again, spoiler alert, God wins, right? So what do we have? We have hope. When we despair, it means our circumstances were what we were basing our hope on. We've been practicing self-worship because God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. True worship produces hope. What else does true worship produce? It produces responsiveness. It produces responsiveness. I I love what the text says here at the end of chapter 5. It says, at that time, people began to to call upon the name of the Lord. And I believe that's a a verse that gives us hope in the midst of a very discouraging part of Scripture. They began to call on God's name. It's it's like what we read earlier today. Uh, You call on the name of the Lord and and you'll be saved. Romans 10.13 gives us that hope based upon what the prophet Joel says, Peter tells us, tells us that in Acts chapter 2. There's a recognition that these people have as they live in this, this fallen world, a world uh, totally affected by sin, every aspect of their being affected by sin in some way. Their response is to call upon the name of the Lord, to trust in him, to say, okay, I'm going to worship you. True worship produces a heart of responsiveness. I'm going to respond to God's goodness and trust in him. Third thing that we see here that true worship produces it produces righteousness. It produces righteousness. Seth's line that's mentioned here is a much more positive line than the line of Cain. And there's this, this phrase, kind of this, this couple of sentences here, these verses that are a little mysterious, but fill our imaginations as we, we think about the beauty of what's happening here. You come to verse 21 of Genesis 5 and it talks about this guy Enoch. He's a different Enoch than the one in the in Cain's line. It says that he lived for 65 years and he fathered Methuselah. And He walked with God after he would fathered Methuselah for 300 years. He had other sons and daughters. and that, that phrase, he walked with God in verse 22, means that he's a person who's who's pursuing righteousness in faith. We see that in the New Testament as well, right? And then what does it say? It says, for the only time in all of Genesis 5, this pattern is broken. It doesn't end with, and he died. It just says, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch represents this spot of of bright hope here, right? A person in the midst of a fallen world, a world destroying itself with self-worship. We're going to see this that as we go into Genesis 6. Uh, Enoch here walks with God. He goes through the difficult process of pursuing a life of righteousness. How do we enter into a relationship with God? Well, we enter a relationship with God by responding to the gospel, by, by calling out to God and receiving salvation, by simply trusting in his son Jesus we just simply trust in Jesus in order to become saved in order to become right with God but here's the interesting thing that we see in scripture as well right after we place our faith in Jesus Christ we're called to live the very difficult life of pursuing righteousness my friend Art George's uh someone mentioned him this morning, their their testimonies, and it just, every time I think of Art George's, a a lot of fun thoughts come to my mind. He's such a a dear friend, but one of my my thoughts of Art George's is just what a, what an amazing athlete that guy, uh, can I say is? I'll say is. Um, He's just, he has this amazing ability. One time we were were running many years ago, and and he was kind of out of shape, and and he talked about his desire to, to run again. And I said, um, yeah, Art, I don't know, buddy. I don't know if this is going to happen. He goes, oh, yeah, it will. And and he entered into this this several-month period of just this these amazing workouts and amazing dedication. And within a, a couple months, that guy was, I mean, he was literally able to just kind of run laps around me as we ran. But it doesn't just happen, right? He had this, this regimented diet, and he had this regimented, you know, he, he, run this pace at this time and this pace at this time and for this distance and just just he had a plan and he knew how difficult it was and he he worked at it and he dedicated himself to it qualified for the Boston Marathon I mean just just great great work ethic righteousness and growth and godliness doesn't just happen by happenstance the person who's going to walk with God has to say, okay, I'm going to wor- be a, a worshiper of God. And the person who's a, a true worshiper of God has this desire. God works to, to will and to work for his glory. And so the, the person who's a right worshiper of God responds to the gospel and the gospel begins to take effect in our lives. We say, okay, I'm, I'm going to pursue righteousness. Righteousness isn't this, this thing that only like certain people have. Righteousness is this thing that, that I know that I need and I need to, to grow. And so I'm going to pursue the difficult life of following after God. And so it means that I begin to, to do the spiritual discipline. I begin to, to participate in ministry and I pretend to participate in people's lives and, I, and I'm a, a generous person and I'm a, a faithful person who prays and reads God's word not because those things make me right with God but because I, I desire to grow in my relationship with God righteousness is a product of the true worshiper and the fourth thing that I want us to think about that true worship produces is yearning it's yearning As you come to the end of Genesis 5, don't read too quickly because something very, very interesting happens as we come to the end of Genesis 5. You have Lamech, and this is a different Lamech than the one in chapter 4 also. It says that he lives and he fathers a son and he names him Noah. And for the first time, we see why someone names someone something in Genesis 5. He says he named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. And, and that word Noah in Hebrew is similar to the word rest. It can be comfort. And so Lamech is one who looks back on the rest of Genesis 5 before him and he sees death and he sees a world destroyed by worship, not worship of God, but worship of self. And as he sees that and he thinks back, to, I believe, to God's promise to his forefathers, to Eve and Adam about this, this coming one who would, who would crush the serpent's head, who would take this, you know, the, the curse that God had given on, on the land and, and had cursed and was causing the discomfort and the the pain, Lamech says, maybe this one, maybe Noah will be the one who brings us rest, who brings us comfort. What is Lamech? Lamech is one who yearns. He yearns. He yearns for things to be different. Not different for his own glory, but, but different for the glory of God. As we come to the end of Genesis 5, we see one who yearns. He yearns for the Messiah. Noah is a picture of Christ, but but not Christ, right? We see that he's a picture of Christ in the New Testament, the deliverance that he offers, but he's not Christ. Lamech still yearns. You know when you're on a car trip? It's been a long car trip. And it seems like every mile you go takes about 15 minutes. <laughs> you keep looking at the odometer. Man, is that all is that all we've traveled? You just yearn for home. I just oh, I want to be home. I'm ready to be, ready to be in my bed. I'm, I'm ready to have all the things that I'm kind of used to around me. I'm, I'm ready for that. I'm yearning for that. What we yearn for reveals what we value. What we yearn for reveals who we are worshiping. The person who truly worships yearns for Jesus. The person who doesn't yearn for Jesus is not a true worshiper. I think the hip-hop artist Shylin put it very well as he's talking about his song about false teachers and Kind of listening to different false teachers and one false teacher who says, you know, you can live your best life now, and he puts it this way, he says, If you if you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. You're headed for hell. You see, this this world is, is not the way it's supposed to be. Right now, we are living in a world that's destroyed by worship, by worship of self. And if you look around at, at the world, you say, this, this world is what I want to hold on to. Worship of self is what I want to hold on to. I want to make, make, make myself my God. I want to be the one who determines what's right. I want to be the one who determines what's wrong. I want to be the one who determines what I'm going to do. I want my preferences to take, take pr- uh, precedence over other people's preferences and opinions. I want you to serve me. I want my life to be marked by other people doing what I desire them to do. And when they don't, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be hatred. There's going to be a lack of responsibility. If that's how you're living your life right now, you are a self-worshipper. You are loving a world that is destined to perish. But what's the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that one did come, the Lord Jesus Christ who completely dealt with sin and its consequences in our life on the cross, who rose from the dead and now has become the, the, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, the treasure that we should be willing to sell anything and sacrifice anything in order to obtain and can obtain simply by placing our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. What does true worship, what does is, what is obtaining Jesus Christ produce in us? It produces hope. It produces a responsiveness to the glory of God. It produces righteousness in our life. It produces even more yearning for Jesus. That's what true worship of God produces. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus that yields this fruit in our lives. and I pray that you would help us by your Spirit's work within us, become more and more like your son, Jesus. And Father, we we pray that you would forgive us for for worship of of self. And we we know that in a world ravaged by self-worship, we can find hope and joy only when we choose to worship you. And so, Father, please, please help us to do so. Help us to love your son, Jesus, more than anything else. And we pray this in his name, amen.